Hey everybody, welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast. About a year ago, I had the esteemed honor to interview uh, Mr. Roy Thomas about his early work on the X-Men. We are now wrapping up volume one of the X-Men on my show, and I am thrilled to have uh, Mr. Roy Thomas back with me so we can talk a little bit more. How are you, Roy? I'm, I'm doing fine. What do you mean by volume one of X-Men? You mean Marvel's volume one or your volume one? Yeah, no, well, volume one, uh, when the X-Men was canceled for the first time with number 66. Oh, 1969-70, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we're finishing that era of comics I right see. now. And my interview here with you is part of that big anniversary episode before we get into the stuff that happened afterwards. Well, if, if, if anybody could finish off X-Men, I obviously could. <laughs> uh, how's the new year starting out for you? Pardon me? How is the new year starting out for you? Oh, yeah. Um... Well, it's been you know fairly uh, busy. I, you know, I had to do a, a deposition in a court case related to comics, and you know, I'm doing you know alter ego. I got a few conventions coming up in a little bit, and so forth. So just just the usual hectic thing. I mean, I, I suppose at 82 I should be slowing down a little bit, but uh, I don't know. Retirement's never really held much charm for me. Stan My, uh... well into his 90s, so I figure I can do that. My father is about your age, and life is kind of making him slow down a little bit. He hasn't wanted to. <laughs> yeah, well, it's making me slow down a little bit too. But you know, I, I want to—I'll resist that, you know, to the extent I can. Completely I, understood. There are a couple of things now I'm thinking of dropping. You know, that I'm doing that. You know, a few months ago maybe I wouldn't have, but it's mostly to give me time to work on another project rather than to take it easy. Fantastic, sir. I, I really enjoyed your recent work in X-Men Legends. That was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. I, that was a lot of fun to do. It's uh, They, they you know, gave me a choice doing something with the X-Men from back in that period, and I think they were surpri surprised that I chose to do the X-Men, uh, to Wolverine, a character that I really never wrote. I mean, helped create, but didn't, uh, didn't ever write. But I just thought, well, you know, if you're going to do something and try to do something in that vein. And since I, since, you know, I never got a chance to write Wolverine because, uh, you know, Len Wein was the writer of Hulk at that time. And I didn't feel like taking it away from him to write one issue of Wolverine uh, in the Hulk. So I, you know, so this was my chance to kind of get back there and, you know, maybe do a couple of things that I might have done at the time and, and so forth. Just have a little fun with it. And so it's a really nice, some nice artwork and uh, was working with a good creative team there at that Marvel. We had a good time. Well, and you did a great job setting it in continuity. You brought back the Jack of Diamonds and used Mesmero and tied into the X-Men's plotline in Captain America, where they were all stuck on that wheel <laughs> with the Yeah, well, I, well I, I had to use that. That was that was what was going on because that was Steve Englehart's, you know, uh, storyline in Captain America. And so I was kind of not that I re regret it, but I, I but the Mesmero and some of the other things, they were kind of a given, you know, that. But the, the one thing that I wanted to bring in, you know, of course, was uh, bringing in was Jack of Diamonds because, uh, you know, he'd been a creation of mine when I started that sort of Origins of the X-Men series at the back of the book. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I, he may have been used once or twice since then, but I, I wanted to bring back that character because I always thought he was kind of a nice, uh, a nice character. And he was supposed to be one of the early mutants. And I thought, you know, why not use him? Who has a better right than the guy that thought up the idea in the first place? Now, last time I interviewed uh, you, we were about halfway through that your run on the X-Men, and I got to ask you a lot of questions about your early work. I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit today on the latter half of your work. But first, can we take a step back? I uh, I wanted to hear a little bit, Roy, if you're willing, you're willing to share about your love of comics growing up. I know you had a particular nostalgia for World War II heroes, 
Uh, you later got to write the Invaders series, which is so wonderful. Uh, so I would love to hear a little bit about your origin with comic books, if you're willing to share. Yeah. Well, I, I came into real conscious about the world about the time the war ended and so forth, uh, World War II. But, you know, it was an obviously a, a presence in my life. You know, I, I didn't, my father hadn't gone, but, uh, you know, but I had an uncle that was in the service and brought me back a hand grenade I used to throw around the yard, you know, and hopefully never hit anybody with it. And uh, But I had that for years. And, uh, you know, at World War II was kind of a presence. I didn't really remember it, but then I'd discover old comic books, meaning like 1942, 43, maybe they were three or four years old. And I would find some comic book and it had, you know, a wartime cover or some kind of story in it. And I like that. You know, I, I remember a Captain Marvel Jr. story with Captain Nazi in it, you know, and things like that. So all my interest in the World War II era of comics is already kind of secondhand. It's not because of nostalgia for it because I didn't, I wasn't reading comics. Even I'm not quite that old, uh, but by the, by the latter half of the forties, I was, and uh, there's still a little bit of world war II presence here and there and that, and I don't know why I developed this. I, I think part of my love for world war II, especially in the comic book uh, area era is that that's the period when all these characters got started. He was either right before or during world war II, and they came to a, a fruition. You know, you had, Superman and Batman were pre-World War II, just barely. But, you know, the Justice Society with all those characters, they all started in 40, 41, 42, Wonder Woman, the Human Torch. They were all from 39, 38, 39 on. And so, therefore, they many of them reached their peak in popularity, if not necessarily in quality of art and uh, writing, during World War II. And I just thought, gee, it would be so nice to tell more stories, the kind of stories that should have been told then. They should have gotten together into groups. They should have all known each other like the Justice Society did. So that's why that's why the Invaders and that's why uh, All-Star Squadron later on. Now, you brought uh, Red Raven back in the X-Men mm -hmm. for a single issue. And then later you brought us uh, the character Sunfire, who has some intricate ties to World War II. Yeah. Uh, if you want to share any memories of, uh, of Red Raven or the creation of Sunfire, I'd love to hear them. Well, Red Raven was just this character I thought might be kind of fun to bring back uh, and so forth. He hadn't been much of a character. He'd only been in one story, I think. Right. But, you know, but, uh, you know, I just thought, well, it was a nice name and why not? He was sort of a Hawkman-ish kind of character. I kind of liked him. I think Gary Friedrich ended up actually dialoguing that comic. But then I put Red Raven in the Liberty Legion when I made that up in the Invaders later. But the other character thing that you mentioned, um, the other character... Sunfire. Sunfire. Yeah, Sunfire had been one of the first things I wanted to do in the X-Men. When I when I was given the X-Men, within two or three months, I told Stan, I says, I want, I'd like to add a sixth X-Men. I'd like to add somebody who's Japanese or Japanese-American. Because at that time, there was sort of this feeling, you never quite said it, but there was sort of this feeling that the parents of these X-Men might have been involved with the Manhattan Project. I mean, never quite said that. But, you know, at the time, you got the feeling that might have been the case in 1963 would have made sense and 64, 65, around there. So I said, I'd like to bring in somebody from the other side, somebody who was Japanese or Japanese-American who got, you know, who also got it. I mean, that's really taking something as serious as the atomic bomb and maybe maybe making a trivialized comic book thing out of it, but that had already been done with the X-Men in a certain way, so why not do it more? But Stan wouldn't let me. He wouldn't. It wasn't that it was necessary for Sunfire. I never got as far as having a name or exact powers for the character. It was just the concept. And Stan wouldn't let me, and he had a strange reason for it, which I, you know, really kind of reject, but he was the boss. He said he was worried that 
he wasn't sure that the artists, now this may have just been an excuse, but he wasn't sure the artists who were doing the book could make the uh, Japanese characters look sympathetic enough. I don't know exactly what that meant. He felt they wouldn't be able to draw an Asian person quite as well because they weren't. But, you know, we were drawing people of all different races all the time. And uh, so I, I, I rejected the reason, reason mentally, but he was the boss. It was, he wasn't saying that because he was against it. He wasn't anti, you know, Asian or anything of that sure, sort. Sure, yeah. He well, just I, thought I it maybe uh, wasn't a, a good idea. And so I had to wait a couple of years. And then the first chance I got, he wasn't paying much attention. I needed a, a spare issue of X-Men to spell Neil Adams because he was so late. So I threw in this uh, story, which is probably pretty close to what I would have liked to have done two or three years earlier if Stan had given me permission. The uh, the character is, well, I was going to respond. Uh, back in the 40s, Japanese people in comics were often drawn very caricature-like and often very racist, painted literally with yellow skin. And some mm -hmm. of his concern or sensitivity may have come from that. Yes, Sunfire, so. Sunfire himself, uh, and, and I'm, it's probably been a long time since you've read this story, but you uh, you dress him in the colors of Imperial Japan, and you give him yes. two father figures. He has his father, who is a statesman who's trying to create peace in the world, and then you have his uncle, who still believes in those Imperial forces of Japan. Mm. And Shiro, or Sunfire, is kind of pulled between his two dads, who both end up dead by the end of the issue. It's a, it's hey, a, that's, a, that's a pretty good story. I wish I'd written pretty, that. That's good. I don't remember <laughs> it's pretty but, powerful. You yeah. did a good job. But uh, it was just something I had to dash off real fast to get to uh, give it to Don Heck and ask him to do as, you know, as close as he could come to looking like a Neil Adams thing so that when Palmer inked it, Tom Palmer inked it, it would look like, you know, it wouldn't be an interruption that much to the uh, the Neil Adams look of the book, which was doing fairly well. It was starting to sell the book a little bit. And, uh, and I think it worked out, you know, really, you know, pretty well. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it, it was specifically my direction to Don Heck to have his flag, his costume be, you know, a version of the uh, Japanese imperial flag, just the same way that Captain America was based on like the American flag. Fully understood. Now, if we take a step back, let's talk about some of your art collaborations for just a minute. We got to talk. We got to talk a lot about some of the early artists in the X-Men last time. We did not get to a few I'd love to cover with you briefly. Sure. Uh, you brought uh, Barry Windsor Smith into the company. And one of the first issues he did was uh, an issue of X-Men where they fight Blastar and the Negative Zone. It's a it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I, It is? Barry, of course, <laughs> you read a different comic than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, of course, I think is uh, is just a phenomenal uh, artist. Tell us a little bit about your work with, uh, with He Barry. got better after that issue. That was not his high point, obviously. Yeah, well, the only thing I know, first of all, um, you're giving me too much credit with regard to uh, to Barry. It was actually Barry who, who uh, approached Stan with a letter or something saying, you know, he'd like to work for him. And Stan basically said, oh, if you're ever in this country, he's kind of fobbing off because he's over there in England, you know, if you ever get in this country, drop by, we'll, we'll have a talk. Well, not long after, I don't know, it was by plane, cattle boat or whatever, Barry and his friends show up and that we're, we're here, boss, giving us an assignment. And uh, Stan had liked his work enough. It was sort of like, you know, it was like second, third or fourth generation you know, Kirby or even Starenko, but it, you know, it had a flair. You could tell the guy had some talent, even though the actual drawing was, you know, not too great to be kind, but it had the excitement. You knew that this guy could develop into something. Our standards weren't that high, you know, not everybody could be Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or John Romita, uh, but, you know, we thought Barry might develop. So uh, we, we needed to fill in X-Men. Uh, 
Barry recently said somehow I slapped my name on his story, but my name's not on the story and I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Arnold Drake wrote the story. Uh, the guy who had written, who had made up the Doom Patrol. Yes. And it was just a filler story. My understanding, I didn't know Barry that well, although I had you know, dealt with him in the, in the past and so forth and, and at the time and liked him. Uh, I put that in the past tense. And uh, I was, um, uh, you know, gave him this, happy to have him do this book. I probably had something to do with the assignment of him doing that particular issue, but otherwise I had very little to do with it. And I don't think it was a conspicuous success, but my understanding is that at that time, he really didn't even have an apartment. This was like right right after he came to the States. And he didn't, and I think he, supposedly he was drawing a lot of this out on, you know, just whatever he could lean up against, like, like park benches or whatever. He'd have to tell you, this is just what I heard at the time from people like, uh, who was it? Mimi Gold and a couple of people who, uh, you know, not Mimi Gold, but a couple others, Linda Fight, people who, you know, knew him, a couple of young women that, uh, I, I, I interviewed Linda once and she told me Barry slept on her couch for a long time. Yeah, I knew he was. Yeah, he, I knew he didn't have an apartment for a while. Well, the thing about Barry is I I don't think he, you know, I, sometimes I thought maybe his green card expired. I don't think he ever had a green card. I don't think he was ever supposed to draw a, a finger in the United States. You know, he just showed up. We were pretty sloppy about looking at things. That was Stan's responsibility. Nobody ever asked me to look into it. They just started handing him assignments and not worrying about whether he had the right to work or not. You know, And uh, his friend Steve Parkhouse wrote a thing or two at the same time. And so Barry just starts drawing. And then all of a sudden, after a few months, uh, you know, he's, he's suddenly approached by the immigration people. And my understanding is he was basically given 24 hours to get out of the country or be arrested. You know, We're lucky we didn't get in trouble for, you know, for... For hiring him, you know, because we were just ignorant and stupid and not paying any attention. You know, Stan didn't think about anything like that. Neither did anybody else around there. So Barry got shipped back to uh, England, you know, to right? England until until he, you know, for about a year there or so. And uh, but in the meantime, he had drawn this one story, and while it wasn't that good, you know, again, it showed promise. And you know, every story Barry did during that period would get better than the one before. When he'd do a couple of Daredevils, or he'd do. You know, he did a couple of mystery stories for the books and so forth, you know, whether writing with me or with Jerry Conway or whoever it was. And he did a couple of stories. One or two of the Daredevils were with Stan. And, uh, you know, now Stan, Stan, I think, did his, had Barry draw the first Daredevil. Then he immediately tossed me into writing Daredevil. And I always thought it was partly because he didn't, I don't think he was really that eager to work with Barry. He, he thought he had talent, but he, 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 but he wanted to work with the top guys. And I don't think he was interested in doing another two or three issues with Barry. So he tossed. And so Barry and I had a good time. We did a couple of issues together and it was nice. And, and uh, with all the, the weird drawing and so forth and then little legs that seemed to go off into little feet into eternity and so forth, you know, <laughs> he had a real excitement about it and a real intensity. And it is it is amazing that within a very short period of time, a few years, he became really good, you know. Yeah, yeah. And forth, but uh, in a whole different way than Stan or I or most people would have thought. But, you know, the guy had talent and it, all he needed was a chance for it to, uh, you know, to come up to 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 come out, to be given a few assignments. And, uh, you know, it reminds me in a way, it reminds me of what Jack Kirby once said about Steranko. I showed him one of Steranko's early shield jobs. And of course, Jack knew Jim. Jim had come to him before. And Jack Kirby dropped by the office and I showed him this page from a Steranko story, one of his earliest stories. And I said, what do you think? Because I figured he, you know, he'd say something nice about it because it obviously showed his influence. And he said, yeah, it's pretty good. He says, somebody needs to kick him in the ass and make him draw three pages a day. He said, <laughs> you know? And 
the thing with, and that's probably true with most of us as writers or artists for the comics, you need to have somebody kick you and tell you, you know, write a write a story overnight or do two or three pages a day. And and the more you do that, if you've got it in you, you know, some people are going to get better slowly and some people are going to get better faster. And the faster you're working, the faster you're going to find out which that is. Now, I was actually going to take you there next. While Arnold Drake was writing the book, you paired him with uh, Jim Stranko, who wrote uh, some incredible stories, which introduced the daughter of Magneto, Polaris, and the character Mesmero, who is a, a mind-controlled villain. Uh, I, I would love to hear some of your memories of this time on the X-Men or your thoughts on these characters, if you have any. I have virtually none, because Stan assigned Stranko to do the book, and Arnold was the, the writer. Uh, when I had left, I had given it to Gary Friedrich briefly, an old friend of mine. And then, of course, Arnold came over. Arnold was the uh, co-creator and originator, really, of the Doom Patrol, which was a sort of an X-Men-like group before there was an X-Men, with really, as far as I can tell, no connection between the two. They're just the coincidence that they both had, uh, you know, uh, brains for leaders and things of that sort. Sure. Uh, Arnold's. Arnold, to his dying day, he increasingly came to believe that Doom Patrol, that X-Men was a copy of Doom Patrol, and somehow they they heard Doom Patrol was coming out, so they so they rushed in X-Men into production. That's that's hard for me to believe. I don't think Stan was very interested in imitating DC Comics at that time. However, despite what I felt was a short-sighted uh, myopic attitude at Arnold's part, he was a good writer. Somehow it didn't work out as well. I, I had thought he would take the X-Men just naturally because of Doom Patrol. Somehow it didn't seem to quite work, and Arnold and uh, Marvel didn't seem to be a terribly good fit. So Arnold soon more, moved on to uh, write for Gold Key and so forth, and because he, he was a bright guy and a good writer. But I guess he had made some people angry at uh, DC. At, at Marvel, it was just a case of somehow or other, you know, they, we became a little less enthusiastic about his work, probably Stan in particular. But while he was writing this book, uh, Stan was trying to save it. The sales had kind of dropped. Uh, I think, uh, you know, what, once Jack... X-Men was never a big seller, even under Stan and Jack. It was always on one of the two or three lesser Marvel books down there with, say, Strange Tales, you know. And uh, so uh, Stan wanted to try to save it a little bit. So one way he did was, let's get Stranko. Stranko, you know, wasn't doing a regular book. And if you could get him to do a couple of issues, that might draw some attention. And I think it did because Stranko did a nice art job. It wasn't, you know, maybe as groundbreaking and interesting as his S.H.I.E.L.D work and, and his Captain America stories or whatever, but it was still, it was good, solid work. Uh, and then he, and, left uh, to, he left to go back to yeah. advertising really, really. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but story, yeah. before he but, left. So I, but I, otherwise, I don't really have that many memories about that particular story at all, you know. Now, before he and Arnold left, they started a story featuring Cyclops' brother, Havoc, and the mm -hmm. villain, the living Pharaoh. No, 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 no. They started, well, excuse me. They, they started a storyline with his brother, uh, what was his name? Alex. Uh, yeah. Alex and, Summers. And you and named him start, Havoc. I <laughs> named him Havoc. And decided, as a matter of fact, when I was, when Stan asked me to come back, try to save the book, but then I, when I'd been writing, it hadn't been signed that well before, but he felt I could do a better job than Gary and uh, Arnold had done. And, you know, the book was obviously not doing that well. And I don't think necessarily, you know, could have saved it, but I came back and I inherited that storyline. I even asked Arnold, because I think he was like leaving but, and he hadn't decided whether Alex was going to be a mutant or not. You know, it wasn't like it was inevitable. But of course, you know, you got a character like that. Why not make him a mutant? We 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 weren't in the business of having a comic book about normal people. You know, it's, if Alex became was was a normal guy, you know, he wouldn't have had as much of a place in the magazine. So it was 
if not inevitable, it was at least quite likely that I would make him a mutant. And then I just had to come up with a name. So I took the, you know, I was thinking of the quote from uh, Julius Caesar, Shakespeare, uh, you know, cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war. And I just took it and put a K on the end of it instead of a C. And at the same time, by uh, a happy coincidence, Neil Adams came over and told Stan he'd, he'd like to draw, you know, some minor title so that, you know, he could just do whatever he kind of wanted to. And Stan was eager to get Neil to come over because he was, you know, easily the most exciting, you know, artist at DC at that time. So he said, OK, we'll give you X-Men. You know, we're about, you know, we're supposedly he told um, Neil uh, that he that it'll be it's going to be canceled in a couple of issues. Well, Stan didn't cancel books at that time. He had no idea a book was going to be canceled in two issues or one issue. Martin Goodman made those decisions. Stan just went it would go on with the book as long as it was there, but he knew it was not selling well. What he really sort of meant was it's liable to be canceled at any time, whatever he said. Anyway, so Neil thought that was great because then Stan's not going to be paying much attention to what I do. That's easier than if you do Captain America or some character Stan might be watching more closely. So uh, Stan called me in to introduce me to Neil. I had actually met Neil. He kind of, you know, forgot, but I had met Neil some months ago at a sort of a fan and pro gathering or two and we had talked for a while but you know we didn't really know each other and neil's sort of managed to forget that i can understand that it was not that much of a conversation and uh so you know i i, I actually volunteered as soon as we left stan's thing i said look i can talk to stan you know and, and if you want to write the book he had written a few stories for dc by that point neil so i said you know i had no interest at all in coming back and writing x i'd written it once <laughs> As far as I was concerned, I was busy with the Avengers and other books. I had no desire to write the X-Men a second time. If I could get that off me, it was just great with me. I'll give it to Neil. And Neil, who at other times had said he never heard of me until Stan introduced me to him, said, oh, no, I've read some of your stuff. It's fine. I want you to stay on. So I have no idea. The, all these stories Neil told were so self-contradictory and, you know, all probably all sincere, but just whatever he thought of at the time. So, you know, so I stayed on. But the problem is when you got Roy Thomas, the writer, you also got Roy Thomas, who was the company's associate editor, which meant that I was basically not just his writing partner. I was, in a certain sense, although still understand, I was in a certain sense his superior. You know, I was his editor, mm -hmm. even if uh, mm -hmm. even if he could have maybe you know gone around me to stand directly or something. So you know, and and so, uh, but you know, I still gave Neil his hand. He was, you know, we he had, he came in in the middle of the story set in Egypt with with havoc and. And all that kind of thing. And of course, he just fit in right away, just wonderfully, beautifully yeah, from the beginning. He, he designed that wonderful Havoc costume, that whole idea of the with showing the energy flow with the concentric circles that got bigger and smaller. That was all him. And it was a, it was a great costume. And uh, so I didn't really contribute much except deciding that Alex Summer was a mutant and that he would have the name Havoc. But, uh, you know, so Neil and I made a pretty good team. And you know, we went on from there to... Uh, Sauron, a character which I called something else because the Tolkien people got mad about it, you know, even if they couldn't do much legally about it, and didn't make any difference. I just called him Sauron because that had a lizardy sound, and, and he was a human pterodactyl. But you know, it was kind of an homage. But I don't think the Tolkien people were too interested in homages. And Sauron, then, if, you know, uh, Sauron is my favorite Marvel villain of all time. Really? He's uh, he's ridiculously camp. It's a pterodactyl man. I mean, what's not to love? And every few years, they seem to give <laughs> a new superpower. Uh, how, yeah. did this, how did this character come to be? He's so well, insane. I don't know. Neil said it was his idea. Probably might have been. I think that at some stage, he or I, or both of us together, and it may have been Neil who started it, but then we discussed it, would like the idea of doing a psychic vampire. I think that's how it started. 
But you know, you this was right. This was a year or two before you could do vampires, and if I don't remember if we checked with the code or or checked with Stan or whatever, but at any way, we were pretty sure we were going to have trouble if we used the term psychic vampire or, or anything like that. So, if you can't and and. I think originally what he would have been, he would have been something closer to man bat. You know, if we'd had our druthers, you know, he would have probably looked like a bat and been a, a, a psychic vampire. When he couldn't, uh, it was probably Neil's idea to have him be a pterodactyl man, a human pterodactyl. Well, that's even more ridiculous. I mean, you know, the, this whole thing with this gigantic beak and wings is just silly looking. Uh, and I named it, wouldn't I name it Dr. Lycos, which is yeah, like, Dr. A, Carl it's almost Lycos. a werewolf. It's almost like a werewolf name, you know, lycanthrope. Uh, which is where I got it from. So he was sort of a werewolf, vampire, pterodactyl, you know. And, and you uh, you added this, uh, he was obsessed with the Lord of the Rings when he was a kid. So when he turns yeah. into a pterodactyl, he's like, now I'm evil, I'll name myself yeah. the greatest. Yeah, as I said, the Tolkien people didn't like that. I wish I had named it. I wish I had named that and Black Knight's Horse, not after characters in Tolkien. I was not a, <laughs> oh, Aragorn, I, mean, I, liked, sure. I liked Lord of the Rings and I read it, but I was not a huge super Tolkien fan. I prefer Robert E. Howard to... Uh, to J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, anyway, anyway, the thing is that uh, um, so I don't, I think that out of the fact that he was a pterodactyl probably came the idea of the savage land because, you know, where are you going to fight a pterodactyl? Where's the best place to fight one in this modern world? There's a savage land down there where Kazar is. I, I think that's how Kazar, who of course had been introduced in an X-Men comic a few years earlier, uh, I think that's how we ended up with that whole kind of thing. And uh, you know, it, the story was probably as much or more Neil's than mine, but we'd talk it over, we'd go out to lunch. What Neil had told me at the beginning was the first the first thing he drew, the first issue he drew was actually a plot I had written for Don Heck. You know, it wasn't written for Neil at all. But by the time of the second one, Neil told me, he says, you know, I don't really would like to get a, I, I came, he sort of came over here because Steranko had talked about the Marvel method. He might find it kind of interesting. So Steranko was kind of responsible for Neil deciding, I think, to give Marvel a try at the time, bless his heart. And uh, so he said, I'd rather, rather than you just send me a plot, which is what I did with most artists, with a John Buscema or a Sal Buscema or whoever, said, uh, can we just go out to lunch and we'll just talk, talk over a plot and, you know, you can tell me what you'd like and I can tell you what I'd like to do and so forth. And that was fine. It was just a give and take thing. In the end, I didn't, I could care less since I didn't care about writing X-Men anyway, uh, I could care less if the story came originally from Neil or was it mine or what part of, you know, what percentage of it was Neil's idea and what part of it. I just wanted to get the damn thing done. If Neil wanted to do a little more than just draw my, my story, as long as he wasn't expecting to get paid for it, you know, any, any of my writing fee, if he had said, I want 10% or 30% of your writing fee because I'm helping with the plot, I'd have said goodbye and I'd have mailed him a plot the next day. Right, and that would have sure. been it. Uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't interested in giving up any money. If somebody wants to do a little more work than they're being paid for, well, you know, I was often doing that too because I was doing a lot of editorial work and wasn't, this, and I was supposed to be just the writer of that book. So, you know, but we, we all loved the comics and we had fun doing it. At that time, we just were interested in doing it. Later on, we start squabbling like, you know, just same way Stan and Steve or Stan and Jack or Joe and Jack or you know, anybody else starts to, you start squabbling about credit and who did this and who did that. At the time, we were just having fun and, you know, and didn't worry about that kind of thing until later. Now, right around the time you created Sauron, you and Neil also created a bizarre little team called the Savage Land Mutates. You put 
Magneto in the Savage Land in a guise called the Creator in a very strange costume. <laughs> but there was the that big... was just that was just to kind of disguise the fact it was Magneto for a little bit. You know, yeah, then you had the big reveal, and then uh, and then you created yeah. this team where he was kind of experimenting on indigenous tribesmen and giving them powers and an attempt to take over the Savage Land. Tell me a little about that story or your recollections of it. Uh, I don't have that many. It's just something Neil and I came up with. Might have been his, might have been mine. You know, I don't remember. We just, it was one of those things came up over pizza, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was, one reason would be, you know, going down there, uh, you could, we could have just had them find a lot of mutants who were there. But for some reason, we decided to make them come up a new thing and call them mutates, which is just another version, a little permutation of the mutant in a way. It'd be a little redundant with things. But it, it, it was, just intended to, uh, you know, be a plot device. And I don't know, I don't, I don't think there was anything very profound about it, except that Neil drew it, you know, uh, so, so interestingly. I remember one of the things I was happiest about was that he gave me that, the ending of that one story with this guy, the creator, is that what I called it? Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, where suddenly he reaches down and in the last panel, you see that he's grabbing Magneto's mask, which means he's Magneto. And, and uh, of course, I mean, I knew it was Magneto, but the way Neil did it, he gave me the perfect thing so I could say, well, maybe it's true what they say. Clothes do make the man. And yes, a yes. lot of people told me over the years, when, when, when Neil did this, he was just drawing the picture that way, but it was supposed to be a reveal. And I came up with what I think is a pretty good line. Clothes do, clothes do make the man. Because at the same time, people were saying this is Magneto. And people, I've had a lot of people told me that that panel made kind of an impact on him. It's just a, you know, kind of thing. Neil drew something and that I would try to figure out what the thing to write was. And, uh, you know, Neil and I seem to have a, a certain, as he did with Denny O'Neill also, to have a certain simpatico and symbiotic kind of relationship that uh, worked out you know, pretty well for a few years. One of the Savage Land Mutates is a character that seemed to have a big, uh, a big introduction, uh, the character of Lorelei. Now, I know she's based on an old German kind of myth of the woman on the rocks, uh, but there's a cover where Magneto is opening a panel and like, this very curvy woman stepping out <laughs> when you yeah. get inside. She's yeah. got all that hair and her kind of mind control singing powers. Uh, any any recollections on Lorelai? No, in, in my case, I may have suggested that in part. I, I don't remember, but one thing is, see, I, you know, I was a big, I'm a big fan of uh, popular music in the older sense. The sense of, you know, my favorite sing, uh, singer of all time is Frank Sinatra. You know, and um, despite my love of Elvis and rock and roll and so forth, and one of and one of the things that uh, I thought of, there's a song, I think it's one of the first couple of songs on uh, when Ella Fitzgerald, another of my favorite singers, one of the great jazz and pop female singers, she recorded a thing called the George Gershwin Songbook. And one of the first records on there is a song he wrote called Lorelei. You know, and it's about the Lorelei legend. In addition, uh, there was a Lorelei villain, though she didn't have much connection to uh, the myth, it seemed like, in the old All-Star comics, issue number 39, Invasion from Fairyland. There was a Lorelei character in there. So I liked that name. And uh, again, I don't know if it was my idea to come up with Lorelei or whether he made up a character and I called her Lorelei. You know, it was, as I said, it was kind of symbiotic and it was just like, you know, um, we just we just kind of rolled with the punches and did whatever we could. Did we ever do anything decent with Lorelai? I remember the that a panel with her and the long hair that made her look like Medusa. Otherwise, other yeah, than yeah. that, I don't remember. Maybe we just frittered away an opportunity there. I don't remember. She, uh, she's she's shown up about twelve times in the following decades, but never okay. never anything very substantial. Yeah. Uh, taking a step back to before you left the book the first time, you also did a one off issue in what might be the most bizarre issue of the X Men ever where they fight an alien version of Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah, that had a very definite. Uh, uh, first of all, you know, one of my favorite movies since I was seven or eight years old, and I just saw it again a few couple of weeks ago because my wife got me a DVD of it. Uh, is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? Oh, that's a great one. Which is the first. When, as a kid, you know, and I, we didn't have TV or anything. That was the first Frankenstein movie or Dracula movie or Wolfman movie I ever actually saw, you know, was to see them all together in that that one movie. And I I love that idea, that, that that title, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Then they followed up with they meet the mummy and they meet this, and they meet that. But none of those movies came even close to, to Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the thing is that... Uh, uh, it was a combination of that, the X-Men meet Frankenstein, with uh, back in the around 48, 49, 50, there had been a Batman story, I think in an issue of Detective Comics, called The True Story of Frankenstein. Okay. And uh, it was basically, you know you know how Batman and Rob would go back in time? There was that Professor Nichols who would hypnotize Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson and send them back in the time where they would become Batman and get involved in history. And somehow they got sent back to the time of Mary Shelley. And somehow Mary Shelley is in that. And there's some big guy. I think he's actually a human guy, just a big guy, way too big for his own good. I don't know if he was called Igor or Boris or whatever. But anyway, and, it, and he was supposed to be the, the, the genesis of the Frankenstein story. And I kind of like that idea. So I just thought, well, and there was and there was a second story, which I did not buy because I never bought horror comics when I was a kid in the 50s. But. There, but I would skim them on the stands. There was an EC story that was, it was a takeoff on the movie, you know, the thing from another world, that famous. Sure, yeah, movie. yeah. Well, you know, he comes out of the ice. And where did Frankenstein's monster go at the end of uh, the book? He goes into the ice, right? He's up in the Arctic. Well, uh, EC had done a story, which was, you could obviously tell it was a takeoff on the thing from another world movie because it had military guys and they find something in the ice. And it turns out it's the Frankenstein monster instead of being an alien. It's the Frankenstein monster at the end, and, and they come to a bad end because of that. Well, I thought that was cute. And again, I just glanced out of the stand. I didn't own a copy of anything like it for a decade or two. But I remembered the story because it was kind of a cute ending. So I figured, how about, you know, look, the Frankenstein monster was up there. Why did he got frozen? Now they unfreeze him. And so I so comic between Abelstall and Meet Frankenstein and uh, the thing from another world and that EC story and the, the true story of Frankenstein and Batman out of all that mishmash colliding in my head, you know, uh, came this idea. I'm going to take Frankenstein and turn him into, if not exactly a mutant, some, uh, you know, some creature, you know, that they fight just, just for the sheer hell of it, you know, because I, I'm we, weren't allowed to, we weren't allowed to use vampires and werewolves at the time, but there was no law against using Frankenstein's monster. It wasn't a horror story. So I made it up. Later on, I know that because we had our own regular Frankenstein, real Frankenstein monster come back later, they sort of retroconned that or whatever. So it was like a robot or, you know, it wasn't really the Frankenstein monster. But at the time I wrote it, it was intended to be the real Frankenstein monster. Now, you also did some really fun work with Magneto outside of the X-Men. In the Avengers, where they have kind of an early crossover, he reforms the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants with Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. He storms the United Nations and demands a country for mutants. Oh, the uh, ones I wrote in the, the, in the Avengers, you mean? Yeah, yeah, you had them yeah, there. Yeah. And you brought them back later at, I think, number 110 or so. Uh, tell me about your work with the character Magneto. I just, well, I just thought he was a good character. He was the Doctor Doom of the X-Men, you know? Sure. And, uh, in fact, I, I made him the uh, the father of, uh, what was it, the Wizard in Miss America, briefly, before they undid that. And so, uh, so you... Just, 
the Wizard and Miss America were made the parents of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, and then they changed that to Magneto later. Yeah, right. It's, it was, yeah, you know, well, this is, you know, everybody is just undoing the work of everybody else, and it's, <laughs> I, I didn't mind. I had no great vested interest in in that. I just thought it was kind of be a nice touch if the Wizard and uh, and and uh, Miss America were the children, but you know. It, I, I think somebody even asked me my, says on stage, which is amazing to me, that if I would mind if it was changed, I said, I don't care. You know, do what you want to do. You know, it had I had no great interest in it one way or the other. It's just a story device. But uh, I uh I just I just thought Magneto was an interesting character. You need good villains, and I thought Magneto was one of the better ones. And uh, you know, the thing is, especially once X-Men got canceled, I had a I had a real little crusade to get them brought back. I mean, it's not like I wanted to write them. But I just was look, always looking for an excuse to write them. I had Jerry Conway write a story in Marvel Team Up where they don't wear co- their costumes. Because, you know, I thought, well, maybe maybe the way to go is to go back to Fantastic Four number one and two. And, you know, they, the X-Men looked distinctive enough with wings and, you know, cosmic eye blasts and ice covering you and, you know, and the beast-like feeling of the beast that, you know, maybe these guys didn't need costumes and let's try that. So that was tried. Or the, and I think it might have been Stan's idea probably to put the beast in his own series and to mutate him into a different form, you know, which I never liked as much. I preferred the original version of the beast, but, you know, they became blue, you know, and everything. And, uh, you know, we were just always trying to do things. And I, in particular, wanted to see the X-Men, you know, brought back. And, of course, right before I, just a few weeks before I left being editor-in-chief, you know, I helped birth the idea of bringing back the X-Men as a new book with an international crew instead of it just being a bunch of Americans. Now, the X-Men was close to cancellation for a few years, it seems like. It was never selling well. You're always trying new things. And then abruptly, it was canceled. Issue 66, they fight the Hulk, and then there's kind of a goodbye and we're done. But the title kept getting put out with new numbers, reprinting old issues each month. So why why? why did they keep doing that? Was you notice when other books were canceled, you you didn't see a reprint book come out, right? Sure. Right away. So that 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 kind of proves the point that the book was actually now Neil had this theory, you know, which I don't remember him talking to me about at the time, but he's talked about it quite a bit since in the later years of his life, you know, that actually the books the books he did and Starenko's others were really selling much better, but they were being swiped off trucks and you know, basically, or, you know, traded illegally. So they never reached the stores and therefore the companies never got sales figures that said an X-Man or Dead Man or Shield book were selling as well as they should be because a lot of books were basically stolen, you know, and and that he says that was the formation of the comic shop in a way. And uh, there's a lot of that coming up in my magazine, Alter Ego, the issue that'll come out in a few weeks, Alter Ego number 181, which is a whole Neil Adams issue. Okay. But but anyway, uh, Neil had, had that, that theory, but the, the book was uh, was selling you know fairly well. It was kind of picking up. You notice it, it didn't die in two issues after Neil came aboard, did it? So you know yeah. there was no talk about killing it for the next few months. It lasted about another eight issues. The only problem was is that Neil was so busy with his commercial work and DC series, which he wasn't about to give up. That you know Marvel. I'm not saying we came in third. Maybe we even came in second, but we certainly didn't come in first. You know, or whatever we needed. And it, it, that's why the Sunfire book was in, and that's why uh, Sal Buscema did number six, 66, because I couldn't depend on Neil to come through with, you know, for deadlines as much as I liked his work. And interesting thing, there, the, the two best-selling issues that Neil had work in, one of them was not even, was the one that he didn't do the cover of. Mm. One of them was that one with the big Kazor figure. That was a wonderful cover. That's yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. And a couple issues later, uh, the one that Marie Severin did the cover of, the one that, that Denny O'Neill actually ended up dialoguing, 
but Stan didn't like a, a monster that uh, Neil had put in. So like over my objections and, and so forth, he uh, he had Marie redraw the this alien creature that looked like more of a hound kind of thing into a more humanoid thing. And then he put that on the cover. And it, and it, actually, that was one of the two best-selling issues Neil ever drew, but he didn't do the cover of it. By that, but I don't know, for whatever time, I don't know if he had exactly left the book at that stage, was thinking about leaving it, you know, you know, I'm a little uh, obscure as to whether he was still technically going to come back and draw another issue before they canceled it or had, or had he sort of, you know, dropped out. We we had these differences because like the last issue that uh, that Neil drew, you know, I didn't write is the only one I didn't write. Uh the uh, the the one that Denny O'Neill did, yeah, the slave thing, yeah, where uh, Professor X comes back from the dead and the yeah. are attacking. It's one of my favorite issues from the yeah. first volume. It's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It 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 would have. I mean, the dialogue would have been different. The story would have been exactly the same whether Denny wrote it or I did. What happened is, is that Neil and I had been officially co-plotting these stories. I mean, maybe Neil did a little more because if he wanted to put in stuff, I didn't care. I'm going to get credit for the writing. I'm going to get the writing money. You know, and that's and it, I assumed that was fine with him and, and so forth. And and I and if there's anything I don't like, you know, I can get it changed or I can say, no, we can't do this. Or I go to stand about it if I can't do anything else. But we were plotting it. And we were kind of a team and we got along pretty well. We said good things about each other and meant them. But the thing is, suddenly Neil came to me about that story, that uh, that that alien story. which And he said, you know, I've got an idea for an X-Men. And I just kind of like to plot it myself. And this, it, it annoyed me a little because we had done all these issues together. And I thought, well, you know, and we could have just gone out and talked about it for 20 minutes. This, it, you know, and uh, it, the credits would have probably read the same. And the story would have been about the same. So, but I said, you know, okay, look, Neil, if you wanted, because as I said, I had no interest in writing X-Men except now for the fact that Neil was drawing it. That, that interested me. So I figured if Neil wants to do this issue, okay, I'll just dialogue. It's still going to say Roy Thomas writer. Sure. You know, and I'm still going to get the money if he wants to do a little more work. OK, so I just let him do it. But when the time came to dialogue the thing, I said, what the hell is this? I, I didn't plot this story. I have nothing to do with it. I it wasn't like it was a bad story. I just had no feeling for it one way or the other. And I had a lot of other things to do. So uh, it annoyed Neil because, uh, because without telling him, I, I, I was always trying to get Denny O'Neill back at Marvel. You know, he had worked for Marvel first when I brought him after I brought him into the field. And he and Stan just never quite hit it off. And I was always trying to find ways to bring this good writer back to Marvel. And one of the things that I did, you know, at this time was I, I, I asked him if he would, would, he, would you like to dialogue this uh, this thing? And of course, when Neil finds out, it wasn't like he didn't like, then he just didn't like the fact that I had handed off the writing kind of casually. Maybe it was passive aggressive on my part. You know, the <laughs> fact that, you know, if Neil doesn't care enough to have me plot the stories, I don't care that much if I write them. You know, I mean, you know. You know, I could be stubborn too. You know, I mean, Neil's will wasn't necessarily stronger than mine if I didn't want it to be. Uh, it's just that I usually didn't care. You know, so I gave it to him. So, uh, so this, the, you know, as I said, Denny wrote different dialogue than I would have, but the story would have looked exactly the same, and the impact would have been probably exactly the same. And probably that hound would have still been changed to a humanoid monster with Marie doing the cover, um, no matter who did it. But it ends up, you know, if had I known that, you know. The book was about to end. I would have written that issue just to make sure it was totally a, you know, Thomas O'Neill. I mean, Thomas Adams or Adams Thomas kind of concoction. I'm sorry I didn't write that issue now, but it didn't really make much difference in the long run. Uh, it was a nice story. Neil had come up with this idea that Professor X, he had established the scene that 
the changeling wasn't in one of those scenes when the uh, mutants all get freed at, that yeah, yeah. at the end of the Sentinel story. He had had this idea he'd like to not show him. So, you know, that was Neil. I give him credit for it. Then he decided he should bring Professor X, you know, these guys back or things like that. Uh, Stan had wanted to kill off Professor X just to kind of shake up the book a little bit. But, you know, and I think he was intended originally to stay dead. You know, I, I believe Stan did have it in mind. But, you know, hey, you you can't cut, you can't kill a person dead enough or cut him up into enough pieces or burning with enough matches that some writer can't bring him back to life if they want. To. <laughs> so that so so Professor X a year or so later, hey, I'm back. You know, Bucky can come back. Anybody can come back. Uh, now you ended the first volume with the Hulk uh, in a in a really fun story where they fight the they fight the Hulk in Las Vegas and then they have to save Professor X from exhaustion with gamma rays. <laughs> what this is seven sixty nine seventy. Uh, this is uh, this is issue number sixty six. Yeah, final I was thinking because I was in, in the summer of nineteen sixty nine. I was wondering if this was after that. I went to Vegas for the first time because my wife and I, my first wife Jeannie and I, flew out to California. We got together with my friend Gary Friedrich, who wrote for Marvel, and his third wife. Uh, and we we drove. We were all, both Elvis fans, especially the two of us. And uh, so we drove over to Vegas in the summer of 69 and saw Elvis there and had a good time. So maybe I was just, maybe, maybe that was my attempt to be able to take that trip off my taxes. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I don't remember the story too much. I just remember, I, I I know why I threw the Hulk in. The Hulk was a, a fairly major Marvel star by that point. And if the X-Men were not doing that well, hey, throw in the Hulk. Maybe you'll sell a few copies to people that don't know who the hell the X-Men are or don't care. And so it worked out pretty well. When you wrote that, you did not know then that that would be the final issue. of No, the no, no. Uh, it was not intended to be the final issue. Whether Neil was still aboard to come back or whether it would, or else it would have been Sal as the regular artist and, and, and I would have stayed as the writer. Uh, what I was what I started to say a while ago is that the fact that because those some of those later issues did sell better and the general trend of the book was up, even if copies were stole, being stolen off the backs of trucks or whatever the hell it was. Uh, when it was done, Martin Goodman, the publisher, obviously took a look at those figures and saw, well, this book was actually improving in sales. So therefore, he wanted to bring it back, but he didn't want to spend money on a new book at that particular time. Uh, so he uh, so he just made it a reprint book. And while it didn't sell as well, it still made a few bucks and it kept the X-Men out there in, uh, in front of people. And it, it just showed that Neil and I were actually more successful you know i, I if x-men hadn't been canceled right when it was it probably would never have been canceled at all and in some ways that might have been into its detriment because one of the things that made the x-men eventually uh was the idea of bringing it back as this international group with a mixture of old and new new mutants uh which ended up you know uh, being done and and uh, because of the inclusion of wolverine and some new characters that uh, dave cochram and uh uh, you know, Len Wein and then like Chris Claremont, you know, made up and the way they wrote it became a huge hit. But that might never have happened if they if the book had gone on, you know, over the time, they might have brought in a, a Russian mutant here, an English mutant there, but might never have, you know, actually done that book. So the X-Men might never have become the success it was if it hadn't sure. been canceled. You never know about these things. Let me ask you one final question. You also expanded on the mythology of the Sentinels quite a bit. Uh, Bolivar Trask, the creator of the Sentinels, died in their, his first appearance. And then you revealed that he had a mutant son who could see the future, that uh, he wore a necklace that blocked his powers. You used the Sentinels in your X-Men and then later in the Avengers again mm -hmm. and really, uh, really made those those uh, uh, an archetype for the X-Men that has endured to this day. Tell me about your work with the Sentinels uh, in, well, in conclusion. 
I think that the Sentinels were the the best, uh, along with maybe Magneto, they were the best thing besides the X-Men themselves to come out of the X, original X-Men book. You had Magneto in the first issue, and then for two or three issues, you had the Sentinels. In between there, you know, who cares about the Blob or Eunice the Banisher <laughs> or whatever, you know, those characters. And uh, John, my manager, he likes the Blob. Okay, I like the Blob too, but he, he was not Magneto and he was not the Sentinels. But the idea of the Sentinels, the the robots that are created entirely to capture mutants, in a way, it sort of goes back to Gort in the day of the Urston still. I wonder if Jack didn't have that kind of in mind, you know? Uh, it was that kind of look uh, and feel. But and, and Stan and Jack came up with a wonderful story. Maybe it was more Jack, but together they came. And those those issues sold pretty well. They were the best issues I think the Avengers ever really had. And uh, so when I came aboard, one of the first things I wanted to do after I got done is, and this I'm sure, you know, it was not Neil's idea to do the Sentinels. That was, this was as much my idea, as anybody, <laughs> you know. But, of course, I by the stage, hey, I had a wonderful artist who was going to draw the Sentinels and do really great things with them. And we, and we had a lot of fun with it. I don't, you know, the thing is, I don't know how much I had in mind. You know, I, I tended to write these stories as Stan did too, and probably Jack and these guys when they're drawing them, kind of by the seat of a pants. Sometimes I had an idea where a story was going in the ending, but sometimes I just knew it was going. And I would just try to keep all the balls in the air and, and see where it wound up. Did I know at the beginning? I think I probably had at a pretty early stage figured that Bolivar Trask's son was a mutant. Because I thought that would be a switch, you know, on the uh, yeah. the mutant hater. If it turned out that he was a mutant, the son was doing it, but he was a mutant himself. And he just didn't know it because of that amulet, you know, which was just the device. And so that was fun. It was a way to be a new story without being just a repeat of the first story. And when I liked that, I did, you know, another story, you know, with them. And it turned out to be the event, the Avengers. That worked out okay. I think Chris Claremont contributed to the plot of that one. And, uh, you know, it just, I liked the Sentinels. I thought they were just like the, one of the best things to come out of the X-Men. So even though they didn't have any real personality, there was just this, there was almost the web or the, or the beehive mind kind yeah, of aspect yeah. of the Sentinels, which was what I liked. They, this you remember in uh, the day the earth stood still, you know, Gort, the robot, uh, he's not as powerful and in charge as he is in the short story from which that uh, movie was taken. But you remember, you know, he's like a, a policeman who's been made so powerful that he can destroy anybody that, you know, and, and I think I have a suspicion that that uh, Gort was what was on Jack's mind and maybe Stan's mind too, you know, when they made up this idea of the robot who's, He's made the, the rope only instead of one, it's a bunch of them, made important enough and powerful enough that they're independent. You know, that you can't tell them, uh, arrest this person or don't arrest this person. They're just going to do it. And that was that was fun because it's like a uh, it's like a, a an un, it's almost like a living and yet unliving force of law, you know. And I, I, I like that idea. I thought it was very good in the. Uh, original story by Stan and Jack. And I, you know, and I, I think Neil and I, and uh, later Rich Buckler and I did some nice things with it too. And of I, course, uh, the Sentinels have popped up a lot since then. I could interview you for hours about the Invaders and the Avengers and the West Coast Avengers and so many other things, but what an absolute honor to pick your brain on X-Men. I got to do it twice. We got to cover the whole volume. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. I'm smiling. You can't see it, but I'm smiling. But, uh, <laughs> thank you very much. It's It's been a pleasure. You know, I don't, often, you know, think that much about the X-Men, but, you know, it's kind of fun sometimes to think. And 
you know, I mean, Neil and I had our difficulties over the years, uh, some of them over the X-Men, and they got worse as time went on. But the fact remains, from the from the day I first saw him in the bullpen, a few days after he got the assignment, he came in with the first pages he was drawing of the X-Men from my, from my plot that he'd been given. You know, I became, before that, I kind of liked his work. You know, I, I, Dead Man had come out, and I really liked that. But I became a real fan once I saw how good he really was up close. You know, I became even more of a fan. And that persisted even when Neil and I, you know, said evil things about each other and we we would we would barely have spoken <laughs> and and everything else. The fact remains, you know, he never said bad things about my writing and I never said bad things about his art because, <laughs> you know, and everything. And uh, I think we were both smart not to do that. Now, uh, we're going to put this out in a couple of weeks. Ray. I know you've got alter ego consistently. but Is, is there anything else you'd like to plug or, or let our listeners know about that they can look forward to coming out from you? Well, you know, alter ego, the two months later, there'll be yet another alter ego, you know, <laughs> we're, we're doing a whole issue on Irv Novik, you know, the Batman Flash shield artist uh, that was really a book that we've sort of bridged down. And, you know, we're going to have some some nice coverage of some, uh, you know, some major artists and some and some kind of forgotten artists, you know, if you don't know names like Kenneth Landau and Orlando and uh, Lee Goldsmith, but, you know, as well as the Irv Noviks and uh, an issue on pa- Tom Palmer who inked all those. Sure, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, who passed away right after he gave us permission to finally, all the years I, tra- I chased him around to get an interview, but he would always say, I don't want to give an interview to Alter Ego because I don't want people to know how old I am up here. I said, you don't think they reprint those X-Men every couple of years. You don't think people up there know that you're how old you are or how long you've been around the field, but I could never change his mind. So I just gave up. And then sometime just a few months before he died, he suddenly changed his mind and he working through uh, Alex Grant and Tim John Thompson uh, came to me with the idea that of having alter ego publish finally the official interview. I couldn't believe it, but of course I grabbed it up and I was just sorry that, you know, Tom uh, passed away, bef- you know, a few months later before the interview was published. So that's fun. And uh, I finally started work on my autobiography. I started right before the end of last year, just set knew if I sat down and started it by go sit down. Now I'm working away and I just work in dribs and drabs, but finally, finally. I, yeah, I've only written about 20 or 25,000 words and I'm already, I'm still in the eighth grade. So it's still pretty early <laughs> days, but uh, other than that, I write, you know, introductions of various books and uh, you know, one book that uh, I've been mentioning, I have no fiduciary interest in anymore, but uh, you know, but there's a book about to come out. It'll probably be coming out about the time this comes out. It's called uh, the Marvel value stamps book, uh, Abrams book, puts it out. And it's about those awful Marvel value stamps. I remember the value stamps. That made people cut out their, and I hated that. I, t- I told them when they asked me to, you know, to sort of, I didn't really, they, they put together all this other material. It's wonderful. It's the, it's the original drawings from which the stamps came and then it's the page they appeared on in the book, which means you get a lot of letters pages with that interesting and the story of the British stamps that kind of preceded them that Stan did and, and revivals where they tried to revive the idea a few years later. And, as I told Charlie Cookman, the editor of the book, I said, uh, you know, this book is 10 times better than it really has a right to be because I hated the Marvel value stamps. But I said, I'll write this introductory essay as long as I can say how much I hated. Them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but and I, it, and it's, it's really kind of, it's, it's, fairly, it's a 300 page book and it's, it's, yeah. got, it's got all the stamps in it, the story behind them and so forth. And I'm happy to say that once Stan told me the idea and I hated it so much, I'm happy to say I had almost nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, I avoided doing. I said I want nothing to do with a, with a, a with a thing that makes kids, our adults, cut up their comic books. You know, and so forth. But 
you know, I, I like to write introductions, you know, to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably still be writing some introductions to the Conan books, even though Marvel's lost the rights and, you know, and, uh, you know, now another company has it, but they've talked to me about maybe writing introductions for the new, some of the new editions. And, you know, hey, you know, I, uh, you know, I, if, if their checks are good, you know, I'll do it and have fun doing it. Anytime I see your name on the book, I'll pick it up. I'll look forward okay. to your inevitable autobiography, and I will definitely pick up the Sam's book as well. Uh, Roy, thank you, thank you for your time today. I hope you have a wonderful evening, and it's been such an honor to sit with you today. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. It's been fun. All right, everybody. Thank you. We'll see you back here uh, on uh, Grey Malkin Lane next time, where we are interviewing uh, Thorne Gronbeck and Philip Seavey and uh, doing a review of Generation X minus one. We'll see you back here next time. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.